Welcome to Baby Magic. This episode has been a little bit of a long time coming, and I'll tell you why in a minute. I'm welcoming Louis Malmadrona. He's a healer, a medical doctor. He specializes in obstetrics, psychiatry, family medicine, and geriatrics. And he is also a storyteller. He draws on his indigenous heritage to create a breed of narrative medicine that is true coyote. I have personally witnessed his magic as he accompanied a new mother working through a traumatic event in her childbearing life. He guided her as she dissolved blame so that she could proceed with true grief. Lewis and his wife present workshops and classes. Check out the show notes if you're interested. They also live in rural Maine, where we had a little trouble reaching him. So please forgive the audio quality. I'm speaking with Louis Malmadrona today. Really happy that you're here, Louis. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of time for Baby Magic Podcast. Yes, happy to be here. I always like my people to um, introduce themselves. I, I, I don't want to describe you to other people. So if you could just inter- introduce yourself for our listeners. Who are you? What's your work? What's your life? Uh, Task. Well, that, those are all questions that I've been trying to figure out for a really long time, so I'll give you my closest approximation. Um, somehow I got caught up in medicine, and um, I, I tend to gravitate toward the areas where I see that we're, we in medicine are performing the worst. And so, for me, that's obstetrics and psychiatry. Those have been two areas that I've been really interested in. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've been trying to change both of those worlds unsuccessfully for a really long time. <laughs> and, and I don't know that they'll ever change. But, um, but that's my task, I suppose, self administered task and um, you know I, I I just wish that both of those fields could be more humanized humanizing compassionate patient-centered um, caring all of those things absolutely that is that is our that is our big task today in the world I think and as women, um, we're, we're experiencing now more than ever a medical practice in childbirth, particularly that is destructive, it's aggressive, and it's fear-based. What do you think has happened to Western medicine? And do you, do you think it can be healed? Well, <clears throat> I think what's happened is that we have this overwhelming desire to be in control of nature, of everything, and to have no surprises, and to feel like we're very important, that that without we doctors, nothing good could happen. So, so we have this tremendous overestimation of our importance, which some people have called the Lake Wobegon effect. And um, we also have this tremendous need to be in control. And 
in the United States, we have this tremendous fear of malpractice, which I don't think is quite as prominent in Canada, based on my four years of practicing there. And um, it's all come together, I think, in a terrible way. Um, and so, for example, um, there's a study that was just released about how we should induce every woman at 39 weeks. And it was, it was really quite a poor study in some ways because it was a randomized control trial, but only in, in super academic medical centers without midwives. And 80% of the women refused to participate who were asked if they'd want to be a part of the study. So it was, it was, it was really, I don't know, not a representative study. And it turned out that women only delivered three days sooner on average with all of this mishigash. And yet mm. now in, in the hospital where I work, they're, they're based on this trial, they're, they're trying to induce everyone at 39 weeks. And, um, you know, in our hospital, I, w I was just at a delivery yesterday in which the woman didn't have an epidural, which was pretty amazing for the resident I was supervising. But yet, and the resident, to her great credit, allowed the patient to push in the hands and knees position, but then right at the end insisted that she turn over and get up in stirrups, you know, and do it the, the normal way to push the baby out. And, um, you know, it, it's just frustrating because with all of this technology, we haven't improved neonatal mortality in at least 30 years, um, maybe 40. So whatever we're doing, it isn't working. And it, and it's certainly disturbing the natural process. And I don't know what we can do about it. I keep talking and mostly people don't listen. Um, you know, I think in the 70s and 80s, we thought we could change the world. But that didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, the world showed us that that technology and money wins. So I, I, I'm, I'm sad to be a pessimist, but I haven't seen anything go the, the direction that I wanted it to go in either obstetrics or psychiatry. Um, it seems like we're less and less humanistic and more and more technological and, and for no good means, for no good result. We're not any healthier. Um, we're not any happier. Probably, maybe we're less happy, as far as I can tell. But I don't see that it's going to change. Well, I'm really lucky here because I stepped away from birth work for a few years, in fact, because I was feeling very traumatized by my experience watching women get um, 
really abused and 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 violated in hospitals and now I'm back and I'm seeing that there's a movement amongst women to really um move away from that kind of violation um and and it's interesting and exciting and a little bit scary um but it's actually happening so so I'm I'm I know that you need to be a pessimist for a little while, but I'm telling you the cracks are starting <laughs> to show. So, yeah. Well, that would be wonderful. It, it may just be that they're not showing in Maine, where I, you know, rural Maine where I live. But, but if they're going to show anywhere, it's going to be in Montreal or Toronto or Vancouver, I think. Well, they're certainly starting to show here in Montreal. And and actually, yes, in, in a lot of different places where, where people are calling me from. So it, it's pretty interesting. But the fact is that many women are traumatized um, during their birth experiences. So I wanted to, if I wanted for you to talk a little bit about how narrative and story can work to heal trauma in birth. Well, you know, trauma tends to be unstoried in the sense that that it's an experience that people find difficult to describe or to talk about. And, and it, it turns out a lot of people have found that if one can tell a story about what happened and, and find a way to make meaning about that story, that one can feel much better and and feel some sense of resolution moving forward and so so really the the narrative approach to trauma is to help people to tell their story to speak about the unspeakable and to continue to speak about it until the the emotional charge dissipates and and and, and ultimately to speak about it with humor and meaning and a sense of of accomplishment and and so that takes sometimes telling the story many times in many different ways but but when it's accomplished you know it's as if the trauma is contained there's there's it's it's sort of um, canned put in a jar um, processed and and doesn't have such a negative impact on one's life. So, I mean, I think that's really the essence of the narrative approach. So how, how would it be useful, do you think, for both companions to use story during their prenatal work with women that they are attending? Or is it something that needs to be... Um, I guess what I'm asking is, do you have to be an expert? No. Um, everyone is an expert at story. Everyone knows a good story when they hear one, and everyone knows how to tell good stories. And so I think, you know, in in the way that that I would prefer to work, you know, during prenatal care, if we could get women to tell the stories 
to repeat the stories that they've heard about birth and to repeat the stories that their mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers have told about birth, sisters, cousins, aunts. And then if we could look at the stories that are um, negative or traumatic, and if we could try to work with people to understand the fuller context of that story and to appreciate that that doesn't have to be their story, that we can eliminate fear and we can begin to create a more probable pathway to a normal and healthy outcome. You know, which is what um, can be done also with, with hypnosis. And um, I don't mean the kind of hypnosis where, where we tell women, oh, you won't feel any pain. I, I mean, that didn't work. But the kind of hypnosis in which we bring people into the story and find a way for them to feel triumphant to feel capable, to feel able mm. to surmount all obstacles and to, to overcome adversity and to prevail. You know, like the story of, of people who climbed Mount Everest or, or people who ran the Boston mm -hmm. Marathon or, you know, um, <laughs> stories like that. And, and I think that really works. You know, when we believe in, in ourselves, we we can make miracles. I love the story, though, that you wrote about in your book in uh, your nineteen your book from nineteen eighty three or eighty four, and you told a story about the difference in outcomes between the the young women that were told um, that they really really shouldn't have sex because childbirth is hell, and then the um, the the other women that were told that they could have the best birth ever if they just, you know, did the right exercises. And, and, and do you remember that story in, in your book? Um, you know, I don't, it's really funny, <laughs> but, but it makes sense. Oh, it jumps out at me. It just jumps out at me. Basically you were speaking about a, a group of like rural women that were given the fear of God that they should never have sex because they weren't, didn't have access to birth control or abortion or anything. And so the only way their mothers and grandmothers could tell them, um, you know, not to get pregnant but was by getting them really scared that childbirth was going to be absolutely the worst thing that ever happened to them. And then these other more affluent women um, in California who were really doing all the right things and all the right exercises and hiring all the, the best people um, as their team and were probably I imagine expecting something that they weren't going to get and um, and were disappointed and end up ex ended up experiencing much more um, you know differences and 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 lengthy labors and and stalled labors and things like that than those other young women so I think so yes we do need to work with stories uh, so that we can surmount, but also there's a little like, as you know, when a baby is being born, that baby does need some a little bit of stress. So I think our lives are so complicated. We do need stress and fear, right? Mm -hmm. and to we overcome, need, we need 
models. We need stories to tell us how to do that. You know, and um, and I think that's what the t cultures, the traditional stories of all of the world's cultures have done for thousands of years is to tell people how to overcome adversity or how, how to behave in the face of adversity, how to meet obstacles, how to, how to move forward when things are difficult, how to rely on other people, you know, and, and so we all need that. And to the extent that we can find it, we can surprise ourselves, we can transcend, we can, you know, make miracles happen. And I, I, I think, you know, when we wrote about, when I was writing about birth in the 80s, I was writing about this mindset of, of which is a mindset for health. It's a mindset of, well, I can't control this, but I can work with it, and I'm strong, and I, I'm going to do what I can, and I can, I can handle this, whatever happens, you know. And, and so the question is, well, so how do we go about build, helping people to build that mindset? It's not the mindset that technology gives us. Technology says, oh, this is awful and you can't do it, so don't even try, have an epidural, and we'll just, you know, take care of it all for you. <laughs> Which is not a very triumphant, yeah. transcendent, empowering story, you know. Um, so, so I hope, I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged that you're saying that women in, in Montreal are beginning to sort of take back their birth from the system. And, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's such a process that can change, change lives, you know, to, to get, to have that experience of, of, um, transcendence of transformation of of getting through something in a positive way can you know it can be so empowering so healing it's healing in an individual way in a in a generational way but i also think it's healing in a bigger a bigger picture mother earth way yes cuz you know we we got to figure this out or we're not going to be on the planet much longer as, you know, our species is going to be eliminated. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we need, we need some, well, I would say we need some indigenous wisdom, you know, which, which in some ways is just common sense, you know. Like you can't screw up the planet and, help, and hope to survive. Yeah, we don't know that. We don't recognize that. But I think that goes hand in hand with what you were just saying in the very beginning when you said, when you were talking in a general way about Western medicine, that that Western medicine, it seems to me, has no clue how to relate to nature. No, only in the sense of controlling it. Never in the sense of cooperating with nature or collaborating with nature. That it's it's alien to us you know the names of all of our drugs start with anti so we're against this and we're against that and we're against everything and and you know even even in these days of covid-19 
all of our metaphors are war metaphors, you know, fighting the virus. And, and it's, it's funny how we, we don't ever talk about building resilience or building um, health in the face of this pandemic. You know, we're all, I mean, the message that comes across in the media is that we're all helpless and there's nothing we can do and and cower, you know, in our boots and hope that, you know, the virus doesn't touch us. But there, But there's so little proactive discussion, so little um, sense that, well, there's things I can do. You know, I can make myself as healthy as I possibly can. I can, you know, um, spend more time outdoors. I can absorb more vitamin D. I can exercise more. I can eat better. I can, I can take immune boosting supplements. You know, I can, you know, make myself as healthy as I can be. And that's not our approach to viruses and it's not our approach to birth. Our approach is a very passive approach. Like, oh, I can't do anything. Oh, I sure hope technology saves me. And I don't think that's getting us very far. Well, I, I, it's not to say that I'm opposed, opposed to a vaccine because I think a vaccine will be great. But, but I'm opposed to, to passivity, passive mindsets, to just lying down and doing nothing. I think passive mindsets are very useful if you have a group of people that are, that are wanting to play the game of they're the boss. I was just remembering a, a, a moment that I had when I went to accompany my sister when she was having some surgery and something untoward happened. And uh, we were sitting, I was sitting with her when the surgeon came in to, you know, um, basically explain what had happened, which was completely unexpected. And so the surgeon said um, something about how she was... Uh, she was feeling a little stressed because, and then she said, because, you know, the buck stops here. The buck stops with me. And I thought, no, it doesn't. It completely doesn't. That's, that's just not, as a physician, that, this is well, the first thing that you should learn is that you are not in control of what's going to happen. Right. Right. I mean, and I suppose that's what's so terrifying is that none of us are in control. You know, none of us have absolute control, no matter how much power we have, no matter how much money we have. I mean, no matter how much wisdom we have, none of us are in absolute control. And, and we don't like that. We want to be in control. And, and it brings us to this place of having to practice radical acceptance of our lack of control and having to accept that here we are a part of nature and and we know what we know what our desires are and we want to work with those desires but we don't have a guarantee you know that we'll get what we want 
And I think that's what we're, what technology is fighting. And, and <clears throat> it's interesting, over the course of my lifetime, I think we've invented more new diseases than we've cured old diseases. That, that when I think about, you know, I graduated from medical school in 1975, and I think we have a lot more diseases today. And we certainly have a lot more viruses and bacteria than we did then. And, and um, are, are we any healthier? I, I don't know. I, I read a paper that if you survive today to age five, you have the same expected lifespan as you would have had in 1905 if you got it, if you made it to the age of five. And, and the illusion is that we're living longer and it's because more children are making it to age five. You know, it, it's, it's not that we're actually creating more years between five and whatever. It's that the average is, has shifted. And um, so, I, so I question, I question whether or not, um, you know, how much of this really makes a difference? So how does your under how does how do you live um how do you live being part of Western medicine and also um having a huge knowledge of indigenous indigenous healing? Well, um you know, I I I try and, and straddle both worlds. And I I think that um Biomedicine has some high points. There's some things that it does well, you know, like joint replacement, for example. That seems to be going pretty well, you know. And so there's there there are a few things that it does well, and um, there's things that indigenous medicine does better. Um, you know, when you think about mental health or community health. Um, so, uh, you know, I try to practice two-eyed seeing in the tradition of Albert Marshall, who's a Mi'kmaq elder from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. You know, I, I try and look at the world from both perspectives and pick and choose what seems to be most useful at the moment. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I have some difficult questions to answer. Um, I, uh, I know, and I'm sure that you do, that one of the major causes of death for postpartum women is actually suicide. Uh, yes. So what do you, what's your advice? What do you, what do we, what do we do as a culture or, or specifically within our own communities to bring these numbers down? You know, in, in, um, 1977, I published a paper on how having a, a high quality birth experience protected women's mental health. And, um, 
Nobody talks about that. You know, and and in the midwifery literature, there's there's significant articles on the effects of induction on mental health, the effects of cesarean on mental health. But um, we completely ignore that in medicine. I mean, and we think that the solution is to screen women postpartum for depression and give them drugs. I mean, it, it's not to figure out where is their trauma or where is their lack of social support or where is their stress. It's to fill them up with Prozac. And, um, you know, and, and part of the problem is, so in obstetrics, so if the mother survives for 30 days, it's a success. It's not their problem anymore. And if the mother dies from suicide, it's by definition a psychiatric problem and not an obstetric problem. And, and so it's this silo creation, the way we've divided up the body into compartments that keeps us from looking at the big picture. You know, there's, there's um, some really interesting studies. For example, if you look at, at statins, which are the most profitable drugs in the world, it turns out that statins haven't reduced all-cause mortality at all. Not a bit. And yes, they reduced cardiovascular mortality a bit, but at the cost of other things, which went up. So, and... And the reason that they're still the most profitable drug in the world is because the cardiologists who are pushing them don't pay attention to the other causes of death. And sadly, no one does. You know, sadly, um, we're not being integrated. We're not, and for pregnant women, we're not looking at the big picture of how the birth experience, the pregnancy experience, the social support or lack thereof, poverty, um, all of these things affect outcome on every level from, um, you know, cardiovascular health, gastroenterological health, psychological health. You know, we just don't do that because everyone's working in their own little silo. I think that I, I've worked with many, many women who have been traumatized during their first birth, and then they come to me to 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 try and figure out how they can work through that and have a a, um, a better experience the second time round. And and I've also um, witnessed a lot of both experiences in a hospital. And and it seems to me that forget about even the physical abuses that women suffer, but it seems to me to just 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 the action, just the activity, the the experiencing of such a huge, primal, hugely important life event, not only for yourself, but for everyone in the world, of bringing a human into the world to be treated as though you don't even exist. I think that's the root of the of the trauma, and it's the root of the postpartum depressions and psychoses, because that must be so alienating 
well, I, I know it is. I know it viscerally and I know it from the both that I've witnessed. And so to to move onwards from that, if we did change, I mean, for medicine to look at changing that, they would have to look at the very root of how they treat people. Like you said, not as little divided, like systems all put together in one patient, but as a as a whole human being. Right, right. And and where's the incentive to do that? Something has to change in terms of greater public policy, health, you know, countrywide departments of health. Um, you know, the, the criteria by which doctors are judged successful or unsuccessful have to change but or nothing will be different so the way things i the way i'm seeing seeing things different um are that well uh, especially well here in canada here specifically in montreal at the most of the women that i know that are doing it but i'm sure other places many many women and especially and significantly black and indigenous people of color are avoiding hospitals to give birth um, to the extent that that they're giving birth with just their partners, just themselves, just uh, just their community members around them and, and really not wanting to enter into a hospital. So what what is your advice to to a woman who is seeking care for her childbearing year? Well, I mean, I think, I think that women need to connect with people like you, you know, with people like, with um, midwives, you know, who are, who are paying attention to these factors. Who, who care about these issues, that, um, you know, there are some organizations. Um, Pam England has, um, I forget the name of it, but um, an organization to promote natural birth. Uh, Kathy Daub has another one. Um, I think Reading Matters. Talk, finding other pregnant women with whom to dialogue matters. Finding women who have had um, positive birth experience matters. That it's all about networking and um, connecting. And really, you know, that's how we change the world, is through networking, connecting, talking, sharing, listening. Um, that's what transforms us. And, and I think it has to happen on, on, on a very grassroots level. Well, the good news is that it is happening. <laughs> Great. I really love it that you're telling me this because <laughs> it's not happening in central Maine. But, you know, we're it'll, a little behind. It'll come there. It'll come there. I hope so. So um, one of the books that I have of, of yours is called Coyote Medicine. When uh, I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, and I, my, my idea of a good time was wandering around the countryside or the mountains. And I do know coyotes as, as wily, crafty creatures. 
and and I know that they are um, very dear to your heart. And I'd like, because of that coyote energy, I'd like you to talk to us about play and joy in the work, work of healing. Uh, <clears throat> well, I think I think coyote teaches us that whenever possible, enjoy yourself, have fun. <laughs> you know, don't take yourself too seriously. Don't take other people too seriously and we all suffer from that affliction of taking others and our situation and our struggles and our you know um, frustrations too seriously and and coyote helps us to maybe laugh at ourselves you know to say well you know like coyote would say well you know maybe the human race will end that's no big deal yeah get a good run <laughs> Get over yourselves. <laughs> you know? <laughs> of course, Coyote's been here longer than humans, so Coyote yeah. can, can get to say that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, humor is a huge stress reducer. And, um, you know, to be able to laugh at ourselves is, is, is um, maybe it's closer to godliness than cleanliness. I'm not yeah. sure. It is. It it is a it, it is a supremely important manifestation of whatever it is we're doing. I think when I I went to I went to Greece when um, five five years ago four years ago I went to to work in the in the Syrian refugee uh, camps to to help out midwifery wise. And um, one of one of the most amazing groups of people that I saw there were this raggle taggle group from England. They were clowns, and they were going through the refugee camps to entertain the children and to make them laugh. And that is the that that was the highest order, as far as I'm concerned. Like you can go in and, and do all your things, but just to go and 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 do ridiculous things, stand on your head, and make kids laugh—that's that's really something. Yeah. Yeah, that I mean that is wonderful. You know, and um people have been doing that for centuries. I mean, even, you know, there's amazing stories of of people doing that even during the Black Plague in Europe of of lightening the mood. And um you know, I I, th I think we all have to do what we can to to enlighten ourselves, so to speak. You know, to be a little less somber and you know, ombra and and to to just um, you know be a little yeah. lighter. Have some fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to have to wrap things up, but I would like you to share. I, I ask everyone um, for one word. I'd like you to share one word with our listeners that uh, that will wrap up your message. Um, I suppose compassion, hmm. that we need to have that for ourselves and for everyone around us all of the people that we're um, 
meeting. And I, I, th I think um, humans probably learn that best by having pets because we're so much more able to be compassionate toward our pets than we are toward ourselves. We're so much nicer to our dogs than to ourselves. Yeah, I know. Thank you for that. I will definitely spread the word. We're going to be having a virtual workshop. Uh, Lewis is going to be presenting in January, so virtual because of the pandemic. And um, But at the same time, virtual means we'll be able to reach more people. So stay tuned for that. And thank you so much, Lewis, for spending the time with us. Thank you. It was great to talk with you.